Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. On this episode, I speak with three friends and former colleagues, Patricia Forche, Michael Welsh, and Dan Livermore, about Canada's consular program and what the government can and should be doing for Canadians when they run into problems abroad. CJI fellow Patricia Forche was Assistant Deputy Minister responsible for security, consular and emergency management in Global Affairs Canada. She served as our ambassador to Peru and Bolivia and to the Dominican Republic. She also served in Washington, Santiago, at the UN in New York, New Delhi, Nairobi and Lusaka. Michael Welsh served as Director General in the Consular Affairs Bureau and as our ambassador to Barbados with assignments in Manila, Singapore, Hong Kong and Washington. Dan Livermore is a fellow with the University of Ottawa School of Public and International Affairs. He was ambassador to Guatemala and El Salvador, our ambassador for the international campaign to ban uh, landmines. Earlier postings included the United Nations in New York, where I proudly served and worked for Dan, as well as Santiago, Washington, and Guatemala City. His last assignment was as Director General for Security and Intelligence. So welcome back, Patricia, and welcome, Dan and Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For listeners, as we slowly get a grip on the pandemic, we can expect Canadians to once again begin traveling to all corners of the globe for holiday, work, study, or retirement. Inevitably, they run into problems ranging from arrest by foreign authorities to injury to kidnapping or imprisonment. Global Affairs Canada is charged with providing consular assistance 24 hours a day seven days a week to our emergency watch and response center and in the more than 260 points of service in 150 countries. During the first Trudeau government, consular services were examined by the Foreign Affairs Parliamentary Committee that looked at the modern challenges, including dual citizens and how to manage kidnappings. Dan, Michael and Patricia all contributed to the work of this committee. The committee recommended consular affairs be guided first by the safety and security of Canadians. This included not prosecuting Canadians who are involved in paying ransoms. Other recommendations including greater use of digital tools. Recently, Dan and Michael and another colleague, Gar Party, wrote a piece arguing that our new foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, should prioritize helping Canadians. They encouraged her to extend consular assistance to more than 40 Canadians, mostly women and children, detained or isolated in Syria and facilitate their return to Canada. We will link to their pace in the program notes and we'll get into a discussion of this issue. But let's begin. Patricia, and then I'm gonna turn to Michael. Patricia, what services do we provide to Canadians who get into trouble abroad? And has this changed in recent years? Thanks, great to be with all of you. Um, What I would say is, um, and I think you know this, And you all know this, I'm a big fan of consular officers. And I just think that the consular service has had a pretty wild two years in the last, well, since January 2020, when uh, Iran shot down uh, Ukrainian flight uh, 752 and killed 55 uh, Canadian citizens and 30 permanent residents. It has been... um, pretty much on for all consular officers. 
the rapid deployment team uh, landed uh, in Iran soon afterwards, a country that, by the way, we don't have, um, where we don't have an embassy. So uh, they really had to uh, figure it out for themselves. And then in March of the same year, the pandemic led the Canadian government to instruct all Canadians to come home. And they did, uh, not always easily, however. Consular evacuations, which had been relatively few, few, few and, and always very tricky, challenging. Um, they just moved quickly into hyperdrive. Uh, incredible. The Canadian government and particularly Global Affairs Canada and all its people were creative and um, committed. In the first two months of the lockdown, 40,000 Canadians came back from 100 countries on over 350 flights. The logistics of that are just stunning. And we've also seen through the uh, case of the two Michaels that consular cases aren't just about individuals. They can also have larger um, repercussions. Um, for example, you know, the two Michaels has arguably changed our relationship with several countries, uh, particularly China. And consular cases are always big news. So that means that there's always a political um, interest in them. A large portion of press inquiries are about cases. Um, now the travel.gc.ca page has all the information you can imagine on what consular services there is, You've got the charter and what consular can and can't do. Um, the short version of what consular services can do is that it often depends on the country um, we're dealing with and of course with the citizen's own situation and that includes uh, dual citizenship. Um, the fundamental fact of what we can't do is that we can't su substitute uh, Canadian law and conditions for uh, foreign law and conditions. What I have found, and in talking with my um, colleagues who are working now, I found that consular practice continually evolves and is affected by every big crisis and obviously policy decisions as well. Um, I think the pandemic and the um, other rather high profile uh, consular cases have led to more resources uh, for consular services. This is good for all Canadians. Um, the more resources there are, the faster you and I and anybody else who gets in trouble is going to uh, be uh, helped. And I think more understanding in general um, within government and within global affairs in particular uh, of, of what consular services is. And I hope within the Canadian population. The other thing that I've seen is more emphasis on the um, specific vulnerabilities for women um, who travel and, and uh, find themselves in difficulties. And one of the things that I really applaud is the work that's been done on forced marriage cases. Um, that's something that uh, we thought of when, I, when uh, 
when I was there, but it's really become um, much more of a, of a program and something where we connect uh, more easily. And that's the other thing that I think has happened is that the consular service has much better and firmer connections into uh, the provinces and the communities so that when a um, person who's been involved in something awful, and there are many, um, comes back to Canada, it's not just sort of drop you off at the airport. There are links into the community. Um, and also, uh, finally, as a result of the two Michaels, there's the Canadian-inspired um, joint declaration on arbitrary detention in state-to-state in state to state um, relations. And that's been signed by, I think around 60 countries and, and um, you know, they pretty much span the globe. So I think there's a lot has happened <laughs> and, uh, and it looks like a lot um, may well happen um, as we get back into traveling. Thanks. Thanks, Patricia. Michael, one of the things Patricia said is there are things we do do and she spelled out some of them but she also said there's things that you don't do in consular services. So why don't you give us a sense of what we don't do? Yeah, fair, fair enough. Uh, one of the issues that uh, is constantly on the mind of, uh, of uh, consular officers is the, is the issue of rising expectations from clients uh, that, uh, that we can uh, do things either out of headquarters or at posts on their behalf, whether it's uh, acting as uh, uh, providing them with legal advice, uh, uh, providing them with money to do things that uh, they may feel they, they, they need. Uh, uh, there's an awful lot of, shall we say, asks, so to speak, from the client. And in many cases, there are very clear limits as to just what we're able to do. Not just resources, but, but uh, 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 specific advice about the nature of the problems that one or another individual is is having. You also have to deal, of course, with uh, with families back in headquarters, uh, or back in Canada, dealing with uh, uh, seeking advice as to what we can and can't do for loved ones overseas. That's always tricky dealing with uh, with families, as Patricia knows, and anybody who's done the work in consular. Uh, those are the sorts of things that most often come up. Uh, and as I said. Uh, a bit of a confounding challenge for consular officers to do as much as people ask of us. But what you're saying is that we basically, we can't give them legal advice and we can't give them money, but we can facilitate their return to Canada if they are broke, can we, or they've lost their passport? Uh, that's, that's always been a, a bit of a tricky issue. The first, uh, I'm sure the manual from way back when, when it was initially uh, written, suggested that it's really your own responsibility to find money to do sort of things like that. And it's only in sort of as last resort is government available to help you. And we do that. There's, to be honest, we do that an awful lot. Uh, more often than not, if, it's, uh, if someone needs an emergency passport to get back to Canada, the limitations in that respect are that if you don't have any money, you signed an undertaking to repay, the famous UTR, uh, and uh, you're issued with a emergency passport, a limited validity, specific uh, travel uh, uh, arrangements uh, 
for you to use to get back to Canada. Uh, and as I said, uh, limited validity and the like, and that has to be authorized out of headquarters. Uh, it can't be done at a post, uh, but generally the system is such that you can respond pretty quickly. I'd say, boy, if it, if, if it takes more than 48 hours under the most urgent circumstances, that would be a stretch. Normally it can be done very quickly. And Dan uh, and Michael, You've both written a piece in which you've, along with Laura, in which you encourage Melanie Jolie to help the 40 or so Canadians who are trapped in Syria and I guess some in Iraq. So I guess, tell me a bit more about this. What's their situation? Describe it to listeners. Uh, and, you know, what, how did it come about? And are, are they not entitled to a passport to come back? And, and, how, and how does all that work? Is it, is it partly because we don't have people there? Why don't you... Why don't you start, Dan, by just describing a little bit about what uh, you and Michael <clears throat> have described as a problem and, and who these people are. Oh, good. Well, thanks, Colin, and, and glad, to be, glad to be with you this afternoon. The Human Rights Watch has done an extensive report which explains the background thoroughly, so I can maybe summarize it in just a few words. Perfect. And, and we'll also send us a link and we'll put the link on the, um, the, the notes. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because these are... These are Canadians, not, not all of them. These are, the adults are Canadians who basically left Canada to go to Syria and, the, and possibly the Iraq area to support ISIS and radical Islamic extremists then fighting in the region uh, under a number of guises. It was not a, 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 as one could expect, a popular thing to do in Canada. And um, they found... And at the culmination of the conflict some, some two years ago, they found themselves in a situation where they were located in a detention camp in, in, uh, in Syria, unable to return to Canada. And there, since that time, of course, there have been a whole number of, of their children have, have come along. And so there's a group of about somewhat about 40 Canadians there. So it's men, women, to, and children. Yeah, who, men, women, and children who have petitioned to return to Canada. And as you say, the parents are Canadian. These are people who went to their, you yes. know, joined a, a, a nefarious group outlawed yes. in Canada, but they are Canadians. They are Canadians, yes. Or they claim to be Canadians, but yes. And I guess, obviously, part of this would be verification that they are who they say they are. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think what what is... Uh, is uh, is key here and what what disturbs me about this case is the idea that somehow service to canadians can be discretionary and that we can exercise some judgment as to whether their cause was good or bad and help them based upon that assistance and and that that's certainly that's certainly not my view and the the more the proper view that i i would have based upon my own experience is that we're not in the business of making judgments about what Canadians have done abroad. We've helped criminals. We've helped completely innocent Canadians. The Canadians have a right to return to Canada. It's our job to facilitate, uh, to the extent that we can, their return. There will be consequences for a good many of this group of 40. Some of them are going to end up in jail. Some of them will be subject to prosecution upon return. That's their responsibility to take care of that aspect. But it's our responsibility, it seems to me, to offer them consular assistance. 
So Michael, you might come in on this. Why have they we not been able to bring them back? Well, the 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 government, the prime minister and uh, ministers and others have suggested that it's too dangerous for Canadian diplomats to go into the camps. Uh, supposedly a bit of a lawless area run by uh, uh, pseudo uh, uh, government uh, or officials that claim to have uh, control over the area. Uh, and uh, uh, there are questions about whether going in there in our official guise uh, somehow would bestow credibility or, or some authenticity on people running these camps. Uh, and Others suggest that uh, perhaps uh, uh, under the circumstances, uh, we'd be better off, they would suggest that, frankly, they should stay there until other arrangements are made, perhaps through the UN or perhaps through others. Uh, we're monitoring, quote unquote, the situation and trying to do our best in terms of providing services. That's what the government is saying, but frankly, it rings rather hollow when other countries like Finland and France and Germany and others manage to get their nationals out uh, and Canada says, sorry, it's almost impossible. So what you're saying is that other countries have their nationals there and they've been able to go in and get them out. So is it simply, you know, and I, I appreciate this on the Canadian side, we always, the health and safety, we're just bringing people out of, was it Haiti recently and other places because we're concerned about what's going on and uh, we don't want our diplomats having problems, but you're saying that, uh, that in fact, you think we probably could go in or presumably if other countries are going in, can't we go in with them? Well, that, uh, that's, that's what strikes me. It's not clear. The, uh, the government, the prime minister says we're working through intermediaries, quote unquote, but he, he hasn't indicated as to who they are and what sort of purposes to be served by doing it. He has not made any sort of commitment or assertion that the our goal is to bring them out. Uh, he's just, shall we say, lowballing the issue and saying we're prepared to offer consular assistance to the extent we can. And that assistance may simply be calling every once in a while if someone has a cell phone to see how people are. It's as if we're happy to stand by to watch all of this, frankly, humanitarian disaster unfold with Canadians there. And there are at least 20 children, most under six, and basically just watching and waiting as if that's the uh, discharging our consular mandate or a humanitarian responsibility toward them. I think it's uh, frankly appalling. Dan, you worked in security and intelligence. You know, you, you would appreciate that, again, we're concerned about Canadians, concerned about kind of people. How do you how do you think this should end? Well, uh, the, I, I would I would I think there are two issues here. One is this particular case. The other is what does this re case reflect about the way that the consular function is being carried out by the government of Canada in general, in, in broader terms. Now, in, in this case, I, I think the logical thing to do is to offer consular assistance bring anyone back to Canada who wants to come back, who, who are legitimate Canadian citizens. And for those who are subject to prosecution, uh, let them be prosecuted upon, detained and prosecuted upon arrival. That's this particular case. What I'm more concerned about is the generic case of a system which seems to have taken responsibility out of the hands of global affairs consular people 
and put it into the hands of an interdepartmental, of a rather opaque inter interdepartmental committee where the RCMP and CSIS have too much input into the final product. And if you look at the record over the last 20 years, it's very clear that the position of CSIS and the RCMP on all of the cases of Canadians abroad has a common theme, namely, it's better to leave them abroad than to let them come home. There have been numerous cases, numerous lawsuits. The Canadian government has lost virtually every one of them. It has cost the Canadian taxpayer a small fortune in, in settlements on these cases. And it's time, time it seems to me, time to reassert the authority of Global Affairs Canada on consular cases by setting down a fairly strict idea of how the consular function is discharged. Patricia? I would say that, you know, Dan and, and Michael, you're, I mean, I agree that the children here are, are the, the fundamental part of this. Um, the consular international framework uh, moves in fits and starts. There is no guidance on this. Uh, we know that. And every country, is, you know, has got to make their own decision. The, um, my understanding is that um, those countries who have brought people back have all worked um, with others, as we have, for example, when we brought, um, when Canada brought, a, I think it was an orphan, orphaned girl back um, a little while Patricia, ago. Patricia, we actually have brought some people back. Yes, there's been, there's been uh, an orphan girl. There's also been a girl who's come back um, when her mother agreed to give her up, basically. And then that woman seems to have gotten out and made her way to hot a hotel in Erbil. Um, I think what we're looking at here is something really complicated. And because, um, you know, those, those of us who've done evacuations, um, or other kind of repatriations know that the logistics are really, really important. <laughs> you can't do any of this without logistics. And um, say we said, come on back. Um, there are some countries uh, that people would, Canadians would go through that might not want um, those Canadians to go through their countries. Because as Dan mentioned at the beginning, these, these are not universally popular people. Um, and I think there's, there's also another potential scenario, which is if some of these people went through um, some of these transit countries, um, there might, they might actually be at risk of prosecution in those countries. So the question then might arise as to whether um, we actually facilitated a move into another jail, which would be, I think, awkward. The security issues are real. Um, this is Syria and Iraq. I mean, I don't think anybody would quarrel with that. The one um, repatriation that we did in full flight was, uh, I understand it took a very, very long time to get that together and it included uh, military, et cetera. And I gather that every one of these countries, it's taken a long time to, uh, to get these uh, repatriations done. A lot of times 
what has happened is that they go, the people who are coming back go straight into a jail because they are about to be prosecuted. Mm. Um, and that is, you know, that's okay too, if that's what those people want. I'm not sure that all of the Canadians who are in those detention camps want to actually come back to Canada and maybe into jail. I think another issue is that um, although people who went to Syria or Iraq um, or Afghanistan planning to join ISIS um, broke um, Canadian law because there were travel restrictions to doing that, um, Canadian courts would have to show intent um, to do these criminal acts. And that is always interesting with domestic extremists, you know, whether, you know, of whatever kind they are, um, we have the benefit of Canadian evidence um, that can be presented in our courts. When those criminal acts are uh, abroad, uh, it's much more difficult and it's, we don't just, as a result of the things that Dan has mentioned, you know, these, um, what happened after 9-11, which was a fiasco and a tragedy, um, we don't actually allow this, you know, sort of hearsay evidence to come in. So um, I think there's, there's some issues that are, that we're looking at and um, the duty of care to staff is one of them. Um, certainly I was one of the ones who um, put that policy in place and it was after the Norwegian Refugee Council was sued um, for lack of duty of care and I, they got sued. I knew anybody could be sued. <laughs> and um, it, it's, it's really difficult because um, I agree that the children are the bottom line here. And ISIS is not nice, and they have control of the camps. And from what I hear, they're indoctrinating children as young as nine. So there is a clock here. Um, but I, I guess the other question is separating from their, from their parents. You know, somebody might say, oh, well, just bring the children. But, you right. know, you don't, you don't separate them from their parents. I mean, I think we all saw what happened at the Mexico-US border, um, that was not good. And um, even if, and it's, so it can't be done forcibly, and even if you had an agreement, I'm not sure that that agreement would stand in any way, shape or form. So I think there's risks in any scenarios. Um, I think there's also a chance that, you know, uh, we've learned something from the 9-11, that as Dan says, you know, let's not get ourselves into a point where we're gonna to have to hold, hold a whole bunch of inquiries. And I think we've also learned to, you know, governments have learned to work with, with uh, communities, particularly Muslim communities um, to push back against um, radicalization. Um, so I join you in wanting this situation to be resolved, but I'm also very aware that it's not going to be as simple as issuing, you know, uh, you know, a temporary passport because there's other factors at play. Thanks. 
Thanks, Patricia. And thanks, Dan, Michael. Hopefully we've shone some light on this uh, thing and people will read the excellent piece that Michael and Dan and Gar Party wrote about the situation. Michael, I'm going to turn to another issue which is related and something you and I talked about. The idea of our Canadians' entitlement to a passport. It used to be, I thought, it was the Foreign Affairs Minister who was responsible for authorizing passports, but I think you said that there had been some changes in recent years, and I think there's been some allusion to the role that security services now play. Can you explain to listeners what that's all about? Right. In, uh, in 2019, the Canadian passport order was amended, uh, and uh, one of the, the most striking things is that the passports are now issued in the name of the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. The Secretary of State for External Affairs, uh, uh, a title that uh, all the four of us are, are well aware of, even if it's not used so much anymore. The Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, is no longer the prime responsible officer in the government of Canada for the issuance of passports. It's now the Minister of, uh, of uh, Citizenship and Immigration. Uh, and it's become a passport has, has thus become a little bit more of a, a simple ID that the government issues. It's no longer solely related, it would seem to me, about what happens when Canadians go abroad. It used to be, you remember the, the, the booklets that we had, the Secretary of State for Internal Affairs asks you to <laughs> extend all courtesies to this individual who was a uh, a citizen of the country that I represent. Well, that sort of message is no longer, it seems, at the heart of issuing passports. The second uh, uh, aspect of the change that's taken place is that the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness has been specifically delegated and given responsibility to determine um, the issuance or cancellation of passports based on his or her uh, assessments as to whether there's any risk of uh, the commission of a crime, particularly related to terrorism. Uh, that is a new feature of the uh, uh, passport order. That factor has always been, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, considered in issuing passports in the past, uh, but now it's specifically part of the order and given responsibility, and in this case to Bill Blair, to make determinations on who should get a passport, how long they could carry them, and whether or not there's a reason not to give them that. Uh, the other factor, the third factor, shall I say, about the new passport order is that the order uh, repeatedly makes reference to the royal prerogative relating to foreign affairs, that the executive has the authority under the Constitution to make determinations without a great deal of oversight from the judiciary uh, to determine what the national interests of Canada is and are outside of the country. Royal prerogative has become very much, a, a, shall we say, a shibboleth within government. Uh, I think in many respects since the, uh, the uh, January 2010 uh, Supreme Court decision on Omar Khadr, which found, as Dan knows well, and probably Patricia, uh, many, many abuses of his uh, international and, and uh, human and civil rights, but nonetheless, the court hesitated to tell the government what to do to respond internationally to those, shall we say, sins that were 
uh, carried out in Cotter's case. So since 2010, royal prerogative has become a very strong, shall we say, a drumbeat message across government related not just to passports, but to the consular program more generally. And that gets back to the observations that Dan was making about the extent to which security uh, agencies and government now wish to play and are playing both up front, for example, in the passport order and behind the scenes in determining what the nature of consular services are and what, uh, what Canadians can expect uh, when, they, when they knock on the door of the embassy and ask for assistance when they're in distress. Dan, do you want to add any comment to what Michael's just said? Oh, I think, uh, I think Michael, Michael is right on, but there is one though modification that I would, I would hope to add. There, there are, I, I think now two, well, one, one remaining, but there were two court cases on, on, this, on this body of 40 people in, in Iraq. And I was hoping that these court cases would move forward to court and that the court would arrive at a decision because the Canadian courts have done a better job than the Canadian government over the past 20 years in looking after the interests of Canadians abroad. Now, the royal prerogative is, is, one, is one extreme, but it seems to me that the court judgments on the royal prerogative have basically said, we leave it to the Canadian government to exercise its duties in the international sphere to do what is right by this individual. But it seems to me that it doesn't give the Canadian government an unrestrained license to do whatever it likes under the title of royal prerogative. And the merit of having cases go forward is to be able to test these propositions in court. And if the Canadian government doesn't like the decisions to, uh, to have them appeal to the Supreme Court where you would get a a definitive judgment about these things because I'm confident I'm confident that a Canadian court would say global affairs and the government of Canada have a lot of uh, have a lot of tactical leeway as to how they should handle international affairs and the courts would not seek to intervene in that process but at the same time you can't leave a Canadian abroad for two or three years without consular assistance just because you don't want to have that person return to Canada. That's not a valid reason to deny someone consular assistance. And those are the two extremes coming out in these, in these, uh, in these cases. And that's what requires, I think, some resolution in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And whether I read it in your piece, or maybe you told me, Michael, there are cases before the federal court now on this issue. Right, I, I, didn't, I didn't observe and Dan picked up right away is that notwithstanding what the, uh, uh, the passport order and other assertions from uh, the executive that the royal prerogative is vast and, uh, and all powerful, uh, the passport process uh, as in many other instances, uh, issuing passports is still subject to judicial review uh, and the charter uh, and uh, uh, shall we say, procedural fairness. And that's where more often than not, uh, as Dan uh, has, has observed, when these federal court cases emerge around passport services to Canadians, whatever the assertion on the government side and the Department of Justice, the courts still say you don't have this vast and, 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 uh, and uh, un, uh, 
unqualified power. So there, the, the court cases, Dan has mentioned a couple, one that was resolved uh, uh, just last Friday with respect to the, uh, the woman that got out of, uh, out of Syria on her own and had applied for uh, an emergency passport back in, uh, I believe at the end of June, beginning of July. Uh, she was basically destitute, wanted to come back to Canada. Her daughter was here uh, and, uh, and, and the department sat in well, the government of Canada sat on the request for an emergency passport for almost five months without making a decision. And uh, the fact that it had been delayed for so long gave rise to the, the court case. Uh, and the court was, was about to look at it. And when the, basically at the, the literal last hour, uh, the government decided, yes, we'll give her the passport again under the pressure of the federal court review. Interesting, but no actual judgment, it, as you say, it proceeded. No. no. Um, another issue, and, and one that you know about, uh, Michael and Patricia, so Patricia, I'll start with you, is kidnappings and ransom for kidnappings. It's been an issue, and I know the parliamentary committee looked at it. I think, Dan, you con yeah. made a contribution on this. Patricia, what is our policy around uh, paying ransom and kidnappings? Well, um, I've asked a lot of people and uh, what I get is pretty much the official line. We don't pay ransoms. We as the Canadian government don't pay ransoms. Um, my understanding, however, is that the um, uh, commissioner of the RCMP at one point said that they would not prosecute um, families who have, who have paid um, private ransoms. And um, certainly in my experience, and I don't know, maybe your experience too, Michael. I mean, I don't think we, uh, um, we did not hinder. And sometimes we actually facilitated the paying of private ransoms. Uh, and certainly there are legitimate companies who actually mm -hmm. um, have this as a line of business. Um, this was, mostly as a result um, of the uh, spate of ship napping's that took place off the coast of Somalia and then um, those companies branched out because there you know there's logistics and there's um, contact so I I think it's it's there's an official line and I think we've seen um, that the Canadian government is willing to do much to get people home. And I, I think, uh, you know, the two Michaels is one of them. I think the um, Pastor Lim in North Korea, I think the Garretts. Um, but in those cases, uh, no money changed hands from the Canadian government. There's no question that we will do certain things, but uh, no money is, is uh, from, the, uh, from the Canadian government. I think the case in the Philippines um, was um, wrongheaded. Um, this is where they, they, the, 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 the Canadians were executed. Yes, and uh, you know, and they suffered for it. I, I, think, I think we've got to understand that there, you know, it's, there is, there are some practical things we can do, and we can keep we can keep our official hands clean. But um, it's not clear to me that that 
the families would prefer um, dead people to purity. And what the families choose to do or is really up to them. Um, just, just on the uh, repatriation of people from Syria and Iraq, I think the, I mean, don't get the wrong idea. I think that we have to do this some way or another, if only for those kids, because it's, a, it's just a ticking time bomb. Those kids are going to be indoctrinated. Um, children make the best child soldiers because they trust the adults directing them. Um, and um, this would be terrible for the children, terrible for the world. So we've got to come to something and we've got to learn from the lessons of 9-11. All right, well, I'm gonna ask you the last question now and I'll start with you, Patricia, pick up where you left off because in a sense you've perhaps made it. If you could make just uh, one change to how we do consular affairs. Again, you've all appeared before the committee, you've all worked in this area. Uh, broadly, what would it be, Patricia? I, I would say, and, and let's face it, all of these cases are for people going abroad heedlessly, without a sense that anything bad could happen to them. Um, I think what I would like is a greater understanding on the part of Canadians that um, travel and risk are related. And sometimes that risk that you take it's going to change your life and it might change the life of your families. So prepare and pay attention. Um, and I'm hoping that the pandemic and climate change, even climate change maybe, uh, we're looking at BC, um, have tempered that sense of humanity, um, you know, to pay attention. The, the other side of it, of course, is that the government has to really pay attention to some of the lessons that we may not have learned. <laughs> and, there is risk. So there's risk in every consular case. And sometimes we have to take risks. And, and if you could make a, a recommendation, again, you appeared before a committee a couple of years ago, maybe not all the stuff you suggest to be picked up, what would it be? No, I, it wasn't picked up, but it was picked up in essence with the, with the, with the, the thrust of the committee's report, which was, is that we focus on the security and safety of Canadians abroad and that we don't get into a, an argument over um, uh, do we negotiate or don't we negotiate uh, with with terrorists abroad? But I, I would have one very small and and uh, rather inward looking suggestion to make, and that is that consular affairs was made the the vocation of one of five of the foreign service streams, and very few people entering the foreign service now will do consular work as part of their career structure. When all of us joined the Foreign Service, consular work was done by all of us, basically. And you took shifts at, at embassies yeah. and you learned the consular trade. And so this built up an appreciation across the entire department of what consular affairs was and how important it is. Now, I, I'm afraid that it's, it's being lost sight of a bit. And I would like to see the importance of consular work emphasized far more by the department by the people right up to the deputy minister and by the minister of foreign affairs. Well, here, here, Dan, I certainly concur with that. It was work we none of us wanted to do, but my yeah. gosh, it was interesting it and the stories very that we had as a consequence. Yeah. Michael, you, your, your recommendation as to how we might do consular affairs 
better if you could make a change, what would it be? Well, I, I will take it from a slightly different angle, Colin, and not, not think uh, to uh, uh, or focus on uh, what happens inside the department or through the network. And last point, Colin, uh, next year, uh, 2022, is the 75th anniversary of the Citizenship Act. You probably know that, uh, but we're bound to have all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of celebrations related to it, and deservedly so. But it's also the 75th anniversary of the creation of the Consular Service, which took place two weeks after the 1st of January, 1947, uh, and in recognition of the fact that if we've got a citizenship peculiar to ourselves, we better have a capacity to advance the interests of citizens around the world and not depend on others like the Brits to do it. And I think that's the sort of topic which should generate a lot more consideration of these, these issues and these themes and these demands that Patricia and Dan have described in great detail and, and look at it in a little more objective and shall we say third party and, and honestly academic fashion. Michael, I sense another blog. All right, my last question to you are, and I'll, I'll, I'll continue with you, Michael, and go backwards. Uh, what are you reading or streaming these days? Always of interest to listeners. Well, what I've just finished is, uh, uh, I don't know what you're aware of, but the Thursday Murder Club, which oh. is a British uh, uh, <laughs> fictional piece, which, and I thought was entirely appropriate for this group, because it's about <laughs> a retired pensioners, uh, living uh, <laughs> professionals, that is, uh, doing, doing good work uh, with, uh, with cold case files and helping the police in their area. And the other one, of course, I, uh, I've just finished uh, Hillary Clinton and the uh, and uh, Louise Penny's uh, uh, State of Terror, as it was. Well, there was a wonderful BB or a British drama. I think it's called the, the Forgotten. And it's about cold cases of people who are dead. So, and I, I watched it with great enjoyment. Dan, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, PVRing a series on, uh, which, on, which goes back to the First World War of, um, of old movies which have now been colorized by, I guess, by computer graphics and digitized properly so that they're absolutely extraordinary. I have never seen, uh, I, I don't, I can't recall having seen a, 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 a film of Woodrow Wilson going into the uh, uh, Palais de Versailles in Paris for the Paris Peace Conference in color, but this was it. <laughs> and it, and it, and it goes back and, and, tries to recreate what was going on in, in this period of time, the, the First World War, the aftermath of the First World War, the lead up to the, to the Depression, but using these colorized movies as the backdrop, and it's absolutely fascinating. Okay, Patricia, great. what are you reading or streaming? Well, in, in preparation for this podcast, of course, I went back and reread the significant bits of that very thorough and fabulous book, Detained by Dan Livermore. Oh, wow. <laughs> there, there, for punishment. There's your pitch. <laughs> and on, I'm, I'm listening to this wonderful podcast uh, called uh, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. And each, and she takes 
a uh, an ancient Greek or Roman or Turkish person or mythical figure, and she is a classicist. So she explores the person and his or her works, but also she's a stand-up comedian. So she makes it quite funny. And so, you know, <laughs> you hear her open with saying, Today, tonight I'm standing up for Horace and the crowd goes wild. And then it's a wonderful half hour of talking about Horace and his peculiarities and his works, which is light and funny and interesting. Anyway, I recommend it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you mentioned Dan's book. I hold out uh, Bob Fowler's harrowing oh, yeah. account that he and Louis Gay had of their kidnapping and they were yeah. on UN work in Africa. And it, you know, it, it is a reminder again, that we live in a, a world that, uh, as you all pointed out, when you go abroad, um, take care. Yeah. All right. Well, well all right. thanks so much to all of you. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Patricia Forche, Dan Livermore, and Michael Welsh. And I encourage you to look at the program notes for the books and the links to the, the article that uh, Michael and Dan wrote with Carparty. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go out to producer Charlotte Duval-Antoine and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. <laughs>